Matt Prater. Welcome to History Makers. Each week we interview someone who's made an impact in their chosen field, in their community, and often in lives around the world. And joining me this week as guest host is Sheridan Voisey from Sydney, talking to Bill Hybels, who's a church leader from Willow Creek in the United States and organiser of the Leadership Summit coming to Australia in October. Thanks, Sheridan. Well, every week thousands of people pack into the Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, to hear the Christian message communicated through drama, humour, practical preaching and lots more. Today, tens of thousands of church leaders right around the world look to Willow for inspiration and guidance on effectively reaching their community. And the man behind this phenomenon is Bill Hybels. Bill has been in town recently to speak at the Hillsong Conference. He's taken some time out to talk to us as well. And Bill, I really do appreciate you taking the time out of what is a very busy schedule. Nope, I'm happy to help. Yeah, great to talk to you. When you began Willow Creek all those years ago, did you ever imagine that one day it would turn into to not just a a massive church, but an association of, what, 12,000-odd member churches right around the world? No, in the early days of our church, when we were in a rented movie theater, uh, we felt like we were one week away from total extinction uh, every (laughs) single week for about the first five years. We had a very difficult time uh, financially. We had a very difficult time trying to keep the doors open and coming up with volunteers to help us put the services on. So uh, just survival was always our goal. Uh, We didn't have worldwide dreams. And how do you feel now to be considered one of the fathers, I guess, of the quote-unquote seeker-sensitive movement and the megachurch movement? Yeah, I don't feel that old. (laughs) (laughs) So when people uh, talk talk about me being a father or grandfather, I'm not even a grandfather yet with my kids. And so uh, we have been at it a long time, but uh, it just seems like it's been uh, fun and fulfilling all along the way. And whenever God has increased our influence, we haven't sought it. We've just tried to steward it. And so we're just trying to do church at Willow the best we can and try to serve other pastors when God gives us opportunity. Well, you're certainly getting a few opportunities there. Let's go back. Let's uh, find out about uh, Bill the boy. Tell us about your upbringing. Yeah, I grew up in a Christian family with a a father who was a dynamic leader and a very successful businessman. And I had a stay-at-home mom and had a brother and three sisters. We attended a, a very traditional denominational church in our youth that didn't do much for the kids. My parents sort of forced us to go. I felt like I was probably going to wind up in the marketplace, uh, doing something related to one of my father's businesses. And so when did the flame of faith catch fire in you then? Because it doesn't sound like you were given the greatest opportunity to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, well, actually, when I was 17 years old, I was at a camp, and I was walking down a path one night, and a verse that I had memorized as a young person came to my mind, just God put it in my mind, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. And all of a sudden, uh, in just a point of time, the scales of my eyes fell off, and I saw the gospel for what it was. I understood substitutionary atonement, and that I couldn't strive and earn my way into God's good favor, but salvation was a gift that needed to be received through repentance and faith. So I was all alone, standing on a hillside, and received Christ, and felt uh, this enormous feeling of like I could exhale for the first time in my life and Mm. believe that my salvation was purchased for me on the merits of another instead of my own performance plan. And that was the turning point in my faith and ultimately the turning point in my life. 
So you have this newfound faith. You go, I guess, back to your original youth group or your original church. Did you find a home now that you had a faith to uh, have in common with those folks or what? Well, actually, uh, because I was in my late teenage years, it was a short time after that that I went off to college. I was kind of on my own from that point forward, but certainly carried my faith out to college with me and uh, signed up to do have an economics major and a business administration minor. I mean, I had become a Christian, but I still thought I'd probably uh, just run one of my father's businesses. So when did this vague idea that you might not go into the economics world, into the business world, you might actually go into the church world, when did that begin? Well, I transferred from that college out west to another Christian college in the Chicagoland area, and I had a professor who taught through the New Testament book of Acts, and when he got to Acts chapter 2 and started talking about the beauty and the power and the potential resident in this thing called a local church, he kept calling it uh, the local church is the hope of the world. Then I started to ask myself, why would I just do marketplace business when I could join an endeavor that God was promising to use to redeem and restore planet Earth? And so just the whole the vision of the local church uh, grabbed me by the throat and uh, kind of never let me go. <laughs> Hasn't that? How old were you then? I was in my early 20s. Early 20s, all right. And so then you have this idea to start a church... And the theatre idea came up at some stage. Yeah, well, we had no money, and I was just asking a group of friends around me, would you like to try to start a church that functions like the Acts 2 church functioned? And they were intrigued with the ideology of that, and so we needed a place to meet, and we spent about a month looking for venues that we could meet in, and we found a theatre that was in October of 1975, and off we went. You start this church, then rapidly it starts to grow, but you did have some, you know, spips and (laughs) spurts as well. Uh, Tell us about the growth pattern that went from that point on. Yeah, the the church uh, grew slowly at first, and then uh, after the first 15 or 16 months, we had several people get saved at our weekend services, and they started running out and telling family and extended family and friends And uh, then it just kind of became one of those momentum dynamics where, you know, tens of people were finding Christ and then hundreds of people were. And uh, for about a two-year period, it was not uncommon for us to see, you know, several hundred people a year come to Christ and, and be baptized and enthusiastically use their spiritual gift as a volunteer in the church. We call call that time the wonder years. I mean, it, every time you turned around, uh, signs and wonders, God's power was being manifest. Wow. Did you ever have horror years? <laughs> yeah, we, we had, uh, shortly after that, we had an era we called the train wreck. And uh, that was when some of the senior leaders of the church, uh, I think actually because they were working so hard and had gotten a little careless with accountability and and uh, so but anyway a couple members of the core broke their marriage vows and got into some very painful and god dishonoring kinds of situations and when the elders of the church had to bring that to light and deal with it as the scriptures tell us to uh that brought all momentum to a very dramatic halt for about a two-year period of time and some people said, oh, what's the big deal with adultery? You know, boys will be boys, and 
Mm. And other people said, oh, wait a minute, you know, are we going to follow the teachings of the scriptures or aren't we? And so we dealt with it biblically, and, and some people were very upset about that, and a large group of people left, and we stayed the course and kind of taught our way out of that dark time. And after the fact, you know, you understand that sometimes those are the eras that test your mettle, and those are the eras that drive your roots deeply down into the conviction of what you believe and what you don't believe and what you're going to hang on to when everything else feels a little unstable. Mm. And give us a snapshot of what uh, Willow Creek is now. How many, on average, attend Willow Creek services on a weekend these days? Well, we have about 20,000 that attend on our main campus there at South Barrington, and we have another three or 4,000 that attend what we call our regional ministry campuses, which are about uh, 40 minutes away from our main campus and they're linked with us uh, by video cast teaching. And then this fall, we're starting our first uh, downtown uh, heart of Chicago, Willow Creek, in a famous historic theater right in the heart of downtown Chicago, which has the potential in the heart of the city to be uh, the most exciting thing we've done in a long time. Best days of Willow are still in front of us. Bill, I'm really uh, interested to know how you have had to change at each stage of your church's growth. How have you changed as a result of you know this phenomenal uh, leaps that you've had over the last couple of decades? Well, certainly in the early days of the church, I was the uh, the pastor, the shepherd, the guidance counselor, the janitor, the <laughs> song leader, the the one who would count the offering. And, you know, I did everything in the early days because we didn't have enough bodies to go around, and I kind of had to do everything. You know, the Scripture teaches that what pastors really ought to do is equip the people of God to do the work of the ministry. And so really from the early days, I tried to raise up leaders around me and ask volunteers to get involved and try to train them up to take responsibilities in the church. And uh, when it came time where we could hire staff, then I tried to choose staff who were not just leaders, but who would be able to lead other leaders. And so increasingly throughout the 30 years uh, since the beginning of the church, I've tried to raise up leaders and equip and inspire and motivate the members of the church to carry out the mission of the church. Mm. Well, that leads nicely to the next topic, which is your passion for leadership, not just for evangelism or seeker-sensitive type services on a weekend, but leadership development. When was the, was that the pivotal moment when you realized, okay, I've got to shift and I've got to make that my focus? Was it a strategic decision that you made to become focused on leadership development or was it a passion for you? Well, actually, I call it part theological and part practical. Uh, I remember one day reading the list of the spiritual gifts and seeing in Romans 12, 8, Apostle Paul says, and some of you were given gifts of leadership, and when you've been given those gifts, you should lead with all diligence. The scriptures are telling those of us who have been entrusted with the gift of leadership that we have to lead to our fullest potential. We have to lead with all diligence, and I have to take responsibility for the development of my leadership, and I have to take responsibility to raise up, make investments in, and empower leaders around me. And I knew practically that was the right thing to do to grow the church, but when I saw that theologically it was something we were mandated to do, the one-two punch of the theology and the practicality really inspired me to get all over leadership development around Willow. And it's now gone around the world, too. Yes. Uh, some years into the kind of leadership development stuff I was doing at Willow, uh, other pastors called and said, could we sit in on your leadership training uh, sessions that you 
have with your staff, and we kicked that around a little while, and we said, well, why don't we invite a bunch of churches, and we'll all do leadership training together one time a year, and that was kind of the genesis of this thing now that we call the Leadership Summit. When you think of leadership development, certainly the first thing that comes to my mind is the large church context. Churches like Willow Creek and the famous ones like Saddleback and even Hillsong here in Australia. What about the little churches, the the little traditional churches, the rural churches? How important is leadership development there? Yeah, to me, I think it's even more important in the small churches because small churches are going to stay small until leaders are raised up and entrusted with real leadership responsibilities. And when you have uh, 10 or 15 highly motivated, qualified leaders who know what they're supposed to do, I think that's when you're going to see a church get out of that era where they're stuck with 50 or 75 members and go to 150 or 175. And then as more leaders are grown up and entrusted with more responsibility, uh, then you just see the momentum begin to be established and can kind of snowball. But it'll never happen if, if leaders aren't raised up. Pastor has to share leadership, has to identify emerging leaders, raise up these emerging leaders, make investments of himself or herself in the lives of those emerging leaders. And then those emerging leaders have to be empowered with responsibilities around the church, with real pass-fail responsibilities. And if struggling rural church that doesn't have a, a lot of evangelism or uh, doesn't have much of a flow of new people coming into it, then my recommendation for the pastor would be to find the right emerging leaders and to raise them up and to give them charge of the ministry of evangelism and give them some latitude and say, okay, gang, we would like to see a steady flow of brand new people into the church. You've been entrusted with that responsibility. Have at it. I'm interested in your perspective on the worldwide church as well, Bill, particularly, say, the third world church. Let's think about that for a minute. What kind of leadership styles and needs do you see emerging there? Well, first of all, uh, in some countries where you'd least expect a a prevailing church, uh, there are some powerful works of God going on where you would least expect it. You know, there's an evangelical church of 6,000 in Cairo, Egypt, and there are churches in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo and Belo Horizonte and... Panama City and San Jose, uh, Costa Rica, and there are places you just would not think there are thriving evangelical churches, and they're there, and they're growing, and and they're God-honoring, Christ-preaching, you know, manifestations of the Church of Christ. So I'm very optimistic about what I see happening, and uh, the way I say it is there are astonishing of pockets of effectiveness in the strangest of places these days. Wow. And do you think the large church really is the future of Christianity? So I'd also like your perspective on what's now being called the emerging church movement, which in many ways is almost the the antithesis of the mega church, with a, an emphasis on small groups of believers making a grassroots impact on their local community. What do you think? Large or small? Both? What's the future? Well, look, the, the scriptures say that there's one spirit, many ministries, And I uh, revel in the fact that all around our planet, you find different manifestations of the work of the Holy Spirit, and you find some gatherings in gleaming new buildings that seat 10,000, where unmistakably the, the work of God is going on in a powerful way. And then you see house churches and churches that meet in bowling alleys and shopping centers and someone's basement. And uh, as long as the leaders of those churches are trying to build Acts 2 churches, there's enormous latitude in the New Testament for how you build a church, what style, what, 
what kind of vision and values happen. And I rather like the variety of all that and think of that as healthy as opposed to comparing and calling one particular model uh, less than respectable or something. I, yeah. I love the church, however it, it's comprised, and as long as Christ is being preached and the Bible is being taught and followed, uh, I'm for churches of all stripes and colors. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. This uh, Global Leadership Summit that you've uh, now taken around the world, this is quite something because you take the best of the people that you uh, share the stage with at Willow Creek, and then you basically record it, and then you're taking it DVD-wise around the world. And part of us would say, well, if we can't have the people in person, why go? And yet you're actually seeing the opposite. People really do like to see um, these amazing speakers that you've got on board, uh, even if it is on DVD in a local church. Yeah, this is where technology has helped us so much. Uh, Once we got full at Willow Creek with our Leadership Summit every year, we said, why don't we... Uh, real-time satellite the summit all across North America, and then why don't we take the best of the lectures of the Leadership Summit, put them on DVD, and then go to major cities all around the world six or eight weeks later and have live local music, have live worship, live programming, and when it came time to listen to a leadership lecture, uh, one of these huge screens would light up and the vividness and and the quality would be like you're at a movie theater and you'd get a fantastic lecture on leadership just like the guy was there although you'd see and hear him better and so we do the leadership summit that way now around the world we started last year we were hoping maybe 3,500 people around the world would uh, experiment by coming to that we had over 15,000 who came (laughs) and now we're uh, well, there's likely 50,000 that will come this year. Wow. And quite some uh, lineup of guests as well, including Bono for this year's. Yes. In fact, uh, I just completed the interview that uh, we'll be showing at the summit with Bono. I flew to Dublin and stayed at his house for a couple of days, and he allowed extraordinary access. And most people don't know what a committed Christian he is. And mm bending his resources and his influence around to serve the plight of the desperately poor and those with AIDS. And um, I think it's going to inspire the commitment of church leaders in the area of global poverty and AIDS. Mm. And as well as yourself, what are the other uh, lineup of guests you're going to have? Well, we have Andy Stanley and we have Reverend James Meeks, who's built one of the greatest churches in the United States from one of the poorest communities. And uh, we have Jim Collins, just a fantastic business authority who wrote the books Good to Great. We have Ashish Nanda, who is uh, from the Harvard Business School, who is going to stretch our leadership and uh, give a lot of Christian leaders headaches because (laughs) of his sheer brilliance. We have Wayne Cordero, who's a fantastic pastor from Hawaii, who's coming in. And I do the opening session and the closing session, so... The way we put it is we say we will present world-class faculty, all new material every year. It'll be an annual event. It'll be accessible because there will be one in your area, and we'll make it affordable. So there's no excuse for people not to get uh, world-class leadership development. Well, it will be uh, heading to our nation in October, and the details of that are on willowcreek.org.au. Bill Hybels, it's been great talking to you. I do appreciate your time because uh, you do have a packed schedule. Thanks for joining us. Nope, happy to do it, and it was a joy uh, speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us on History Makers. Thanks also to Bill Hybels and Sheridan Voicey for filling the interview seat this week. If you'd like to hear this interview again or find out more about Bill and the Leadership Summit, go to historymakersradio.com. 
History Makers is brought to you by newhopeaustralia.org.au. History Makers.